0: Hi, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And I just wanted to tell you that the following interview originally appeared on Counterpoint with Jonathan Judakin, which is broadcast on WKNO-FM. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Counterpoint. I'm Jonathan Judakin. With me today is Amy Wood, author of Lynching and Spectacle, witnessing racial violence in america which won the lillian smith book award and was a finalist for the los angeles times book award in history dr wood was a participant in rhodes college's event celebrating ida b wells at 150 which commemorated the life and work of the civil rights pioneer and anti-lynching activist amy i'm so glad to have you here on counterpoint
1: thank you so much for having me
0: Amy, one of the things I learned in preparing for the Ida B. Wells celebration, not least from your book, was that lynching was not a hidden act perpetrated by a few men in hoods doing horrific things in the woods. Explain for us how lynching functioned as a mass spectacle in the period 1890 to 1940 involving Lots of participants and thousands of witnesses. Sure,
1: Uh, And I think you're right. I think the public perception is that this was sort of marginal fringe acts and people associated with the Klan and kind of secret power. And certainly lynching operated that way through a lot of the 19th century and during Reconstruction. But lynching changes as a practice in the late 19th century. It becomes a racialized practice. Most people who were lynched throughout most of the 19th century were white. But during Reconstruction and then after Reconstruction, it really becomes this racialized act. And lynchings really start to rise in the 1890s as Jim Crow segregation is being implemented, as disenfranchisement is being implemented. And it comes to serve as a form of terror that operates alongside segregation and disenfranchisement to keep African Americans subjugated in this new South era. And they change in sort of nature as well. They become more public events. You do see before the Civil War some lynchings that are these kind of public spectacles, but they were fairly rare. What happens more and more in this beginning in the late 1880s, 1890s, is what we call spectacle lynchings, where you would have have mobs of 50, 100, even into the thousands of of people coming out and witnessing these events. I should qualify that and say that most lynchings actually weren't these huge, massive spectacles. You had a lot of lynchings that happened privately with smaller posses hanging somebody out of town. But even those lynchings became public through things like photographs that were taken and then circulated and the kind of narratives that were written about those events. So when I talk about a spectacle lynching, I'm actually talking about a a kind of wider cultural practice that happened
0: so when you talk about the fact that they're being written about there were these graphic and detailed newspaper accounts Mm -hmm. songs were sung about these lynchings eventually with the rise of motion pictures Mm -hmm. there are even early motion pictures that are made about this and when i first learned that this was the way that lynching functioned i really had a hard time getting around how exactly this could happen especially on such a mass scale I grew up in apartheid South Africa. I write about issues of anti-Semitism and racism, but there's still something very difficult for me to understand about the face-to-face experience of the most horrible kinds of inhumane acts that human beings perpetrate on one another. And in the case of lynchings, we're talking about… Groups of people, you know, hunting down individuals or taking them out of a prison cell in a mob, torturing their bodies, mm-hmm. stringing them up and watching them die. You cite in the book that one out of every three lynchings involve genital dismemberment. Mm-hmm. The bodies are often burned. Mm-hmm. And then for me, the most macabre aspect of this is that pieces of these bodies were oftentimes kept as what you call totemic relics. Mm-hmm. As you say in the introduction, your book is about why so many otherwise ordinary and low abiding white Southerners wanted to participate in and watch extraordinary acts of violence and what it meant for them to do so. And I have to say your book really helped me to explain how this was possible. That is to understand the horror. And what I want you to do is to help listeners to understand it. So let's drill more deeply into what you explore. Tell us what's going on at the end of the 19th century in American society that's the general context out of which this takes place.
1: That's the question that drew me to this work how do we understand how ordinary people can come to commit extraordinary acts of violence and that ways in which this violence became socially acceptable so one goal of the book was to place the sort of rituals surrounding this violence and the spectacle surrounding this violence within the context of other forms of ritual and other forms of spectacle that would have been familiar to people that would have helped them turn this violence into something more familiar In terms of what was happening socially to allow this to happen, one thing I tried to do was I didn't want this to be an abstract project. I wanted to look at what was happening in lynching communities. I went and researched communities that had lynchings in them to see what was going on in this particular community that would allow this kind of violence to erupt. And what I found is that communities in which lynchings took place tended to be undergoing a process of transformation. At the time in the late 19th century, not just in terms of, you know, we're coming off of the civil war. You have African-Americans who were wanting, rightfully so, to claim their civil, social and political rights that Reconstruction had granted them. And you had whites wanting to suppress that, sort of strip those rights away from them. But the South was also going through a period of modernization in this time there were uh, towns and cities were growing new industries were arising M- you know most of these sort of more mass mob lynchings tended to happen in towns and cities where people would be congregating and these towns and cities created all sorts of new anxieties and fears for white people. I mean, they're, they're having to engage with African-Americans who were strangers to them. You know, out in the countryside, you had these old kind of paternalistic rules where people knew each other. They knew their grandparents. They had these sort of rules that govern their behavior. All that's different in the city. You know, so you have whites and blacks interacting on sidewalks, for instance, or in stores in new ways. And then with cities come vice, right? You get saloons and pool halls and dance halls that become morally threatening to whites. And crime would have been rising in these cities. We know very little about crime rates, actually, in these Southern towns and cities. But what you do see is tremendous amounts of rhetoric about crime coming from white Southerners, a sense that they were under threat. And a lot of that, as someone like Ida B. Wells talked about, a lot of that was really expressions of political and economic anxiety about African Americans becoming empowered, right? And so they read that through the lens of, of crime. But to some extent, we have to look at those fears, of we have to take them at face value in terms of why were they so terrified by crime? And I think undergoing this, these kinds of transformations in their communities was creating that kind of anxiety that led them to lash out with a certain kind of ferocity. And
0: I think people today can really understand that in the sense that there's a huge economic global shift that's taking place right now with the outsourcing of jobs and globalization. And there's a deep sense of anxiety about what that means, about what people's place is, about where they work and how they work and how they relate to others and the ways in which new forms of technology are transforming the way that we make meaning out of this particular present. That's exactly what was going on at the end of the 19th century with new technologies like cameras and photography and the mass press and telegraphs and the postal system being created. So that's the broader context in which this this happens. And and then the other thing that you do is to begin to situate this more particularly in terms of what was also not changing. And Mm -hmm. some aspects of this had to do with these public rituals that you've already alluded to. So the first chapter talks about the fact that there was a tradition of public executions that took place within the South that was already a mass spectacle in which hundreds or even thousands of spectators came to see criminals who had gone through a juridical process, a trial, being hung. Why was that so important in terms of the tradition of the social performance of justice for individuals who came as witnesses to see that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we were so distant from it, I mean, something, the death penalty in this country is so obscured from us. We don't see what the state is doing on our behalf. But the tradition of public execution was a really long one where it served as a sort of spectacle of state power that was meant to serve as a form of deterrence. So we will execute people publicly. But eventually it came to, although it was meant to be you know, a spectacle that would create fear in people, people more and more saw that as part of what we might call sort of local control or local sovereignty over crime and justice, that people had a desire to see crime avenged in their own communities, that seeing the crime avenged was a way to sort of expiate the kind of outrage and fear that a crime in a community can engender or produce in a people. And so public execution served that function. So when we look at what's happening with lynching, we have to see that these people already had a tradition of watching people paying a violent price for their crimes. And What's happening in the in the late 19th century is increasingly through the 19th century, states are outlawing public executions as part of a modernization process. It's a part of the way in which the state wants to wrest control from the people and sort of take over criminal justice. They're starting to realize it's not operating as a deterrent, that instead they fear that the crowds coming to these public executions are enjoying themselves too much. It's becoming a form of entertainment, and therefore it's sort of inciting violence rather than deter- deterring violence. So elites start putting pressure to pass legislation to outlaw public executions. But the process was a really uneven one through the 19th century. And in the South, public executions persisted well into the 20th century in some places. And so they're happening at the same time that lynchings are happening.
0: So that's one important context that you establish. Another powerful tradition that shaped lynching was the role of evangelical Christianity. Since you write. Christianity was the primary lens through which most Southerners conceptualized and made sense of suffering and death of any sort. Tell us about the role of Christianity in setting the frame for lynching.
1: Yeah, I I mean, these are deeply Christian cultures and deeply evangelical Christians, Southern Baptists, Southern Methodists. And, you know, again, one of those, these are ordinary people, these are churchgoers who are committing this violence. And as Christians, they just would not have been able to engage in that kind of violence without interpreting it through a Christian lens. It just, it's too much a part of who they were. And I kind of, I look at that in, in two different ways. One, the moral concerns that they're expressing in terms of what's happening to their towns and communities in terms of vice and crime, they read through the lens of sin right? So they see and they blame that sin on African-Americans. It's African-Americans who are creating this sense of sinfulness in their communities. So that kind of sense of needing sin to be punished. Also, The ritual of lynching itself borrowed from religious rituals and the language they used to talk about lynching borrowed from their religious language. Now, the most obvious language or lens that you can see is is seeing the lynching victim as a scapegoat, seeing the lynching victim as a Christ figure. And certainly African-American writers and activists interpreted lynching through that lens.
0: Is it right to say it was a, a Christ figure because the scapegoat, I mean if one looks at the discourse, it's really about calling the black body demonic and brutish. And partly it was really a way to enact a ritual that was about exercising exactly. these demons from the community in a public way that people could see so that what they were seeing was a crucifixion scene. But in actuality, that was coupled to the lost judgment.
1: Yes, and that's what I talk about, because I I think that the scapegoat lens or the, the scapegoat metaphor breaks down because that would mean that whites were sanctifying the black body and they were not sanctifying the black body. Instead, what you see in their rhetoric is they're borrowing the language from the book of Revelations, which would have been an important, important book for evangelical Christians. And they see themselves as basically extensions of sort of angels of God basically enacting God's judgment and God's
0: wrath upon sin. So that was a way that religion helped to make lynchings a sacred
1: and justifiable practice.
0: If you're just tuning in, I'm Jonathan Judaken, and you're listening to Counterpoint. I'm speaking with Amy Wood about her award-winning book, Lynching and Spectacle. Amy, in the next part of the book, you explore how the spectacle of lynching was both captured for live viewers, and expanded participation through the use of photography and then into early moving pictures. So you write in a quote that brings this all together for us in Memphis, a news report of a lynching in Tennessee noted that hundreds of Kodaks clicked all morning at the scene of the lynching. What function did photography play in the spectacle of lynching?
1: I think uh, played an important one. You know, I I mean, part of a a larger theme in the book is the ways in which Southerners are resisting modernization. And you see that in terms of clinging on to public execution traditions, but they're using modern technology to do so. And photographs or the camera is one of these modern tools that they're using to enact the lynching. It's not just a further violation of the black man's body and his dignity to take a picture of him while he's being tortured. But what I look at is how these photographs were being used and the ways in which they ended up providing a visual representation of pro-lynching rhetoric. So pro-lynching rhetoric always imagined white mobs as being civilized and orderly and determined. They wouldn't even use the word mob, which we, we the connotation for mob is a group that's out of control. They wanted to see this as sort of one unified body of men who are boldly chasing down and capturing this beast and sort Serving justice That's the way they want to represent it. And the photographs created a, a kind of visual memory of that idea of lynching through the associations with hunting photographs, through the ways in which they brought portraiture. Portraiture was about sort of for the camera showing your moral character to the camera. And so the way in which they're posing in these photographs, you, you see they're posing the same way they would for a portrait, which was about public
0: respectability. Today, before the camera, we're a lot more skeptical about the spin that goes into the way in which things are framed. Part of what you talk about is that in the 19th century, when this was a brand new technology, people thought about this as just objective and neutral. So in a way, you have this modern technology that depicts things objectively and neutrally and where there's this set convention that says the way you pose in a photograph is indicative of your character. Mm -hmm. And you have photographs of the black body, which had been turned into the beast through the lynching ritual that the discourse articulated, all of that also at the same time that you've got this religious veneer behind it in public executions. I think now we're at a point where we can understand in a deeper sort of way how these moments were given a positive twist by those people who argued that lynching was an important way to monitor and police crime and here's a moment where really we have the depiction of the black male as criminal being set for the first time in society which is still such a prevalent
1: and then the lynching image is going to sort of fix that as a permanent image and you're right people saw photographs as as you said sort of presenting this authentic objective reality they're not understanding that lynching. The meaning of a, of a lynching photograph can change over time, right? That the mean, as we see later, that that meaning is never fixed. But for them, this is this is who we are. This is what the lynching represents. And now we have this
0: permanent visual memory of this. So let's talk a little bit about the way in which this changes over time. Now, because it wasn't only in photographs, but also in early films, and then most dramatically in the movie *The Birth of a Nation*, which is widely regarded as the first great masterpiece of American cinema. Despite it being, in your words, a film that validates mob violence as the necessary and righteous defense against black political and sexual insurgency. So for listeners who are not familiar with Birth of a Nation, teach us a little bit about this film and what it was all about and why you maintain that with The Birth of a Nation... The spectacle of lynching as a sensational melodrama was most fully realized, Mm -hmm. but then also the way in which the response of anti-lynching campaigners to that film becomes the turning point to re-articulating what lynching meant in a negative way.
1: Yeah, I see Birth of a Nation as a kind of turning point in the history of, of lynching. Birth of a Nation, major epic film. It's a national sensation. Tells the history of the Civil War and the Recon- and Reconstruction, but it's made in 1915, so it's really a film also about 1915, even though it's taking place much earlier. But Griffith is really commenting on race relations in the 19 teens.
0: Griffith is the director.
1: Sorry, yes, D.W. Griffith, and the film is is a pro lynching film. It 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 basically again, like photographs, creates a kind of visual narrative of the pro-lynching rhetoric of black men as criminal, as black men wanting to rape white women... Black men's desires for political and social equality were really about their desire to sleep with white women. And white men need to protect white women and lynching and violence becomes the means through which they can establish or reestablish their power, their white power, and protect white purity. And that's basically what the film represents. And it was this... a national hit, and especially in the South, people embraced it with a kind of fervency. And people saw film, early film, they saw it like photographs, they saw film as real, right? There's a kind of graphic realist quality that they attach to film. And Griffith tried to market his film as documentary truth, right? This isn't fiction, I'm reproducing history. So people are going to see the film Birth of a Nation, and they're not going to read it as fiction. They see this as as truth of what race relations are.
0: How do anti-lynching activists give this a new spin? Well,
1: so anti-lynching activists, well, Actually, they weren't even anti-lynching activists at this point. You know, the NAACP had formed in 1909. Anti-lynching was part of their agenda of the NAACP. But when this film came out, the NAACP launched a nationwide campaign to get the film banned. And what they feared was that the film would incite violence against African Americans. Not that Uh, people would go out and mimic the lynching in the film. What they feared is that it basically just encouraged the stereotypes and caricatures of black men as dangerous and criminal and black men as out to rape white women. And they feared that that aspect of it was going to encourage lynching. They wanted the rape scenes excised from the movie. If the movie couldn't be banned altogether, have those rape scenes excised. And... You know, they weren't successful in their campaign in the sense that the film did not get banned. The film was hugely popular. They ended up probably bringing more attention to the film. But that campaign energized the NAACP. It it put the NAACP on the map so that more and more people heard of them. And you had a lot of white liberal allies and black professional middle-class people start donating a lot to the NAACP. It boosted their resources. And then they really launched their anti-lynching campaign after the birth of a nation. Uh, so it really gave energy to that campaign and based on the idea that images matter that images can shape people's understandings of the world that in images can animate people someone like Griffith is making the film based on that premise and the NAACP is responding to to the
0: film based on that same premise of what images do and by the 1930s it's the case that Hollywood actually begins to help to spread the anti-lynching message. So you discuss a a set of films that begin to depict lynching as inherently un-American. But in doing so, ironically enough, they actually emptied out the roots of lynching in the history of racism and and from its context in the American South. So tell us a little bit about this piece of the story in the history of anti-lynching.
1: Yeah, so Hollywood sort of takes up the anti-lynching cause in the 1930s, and they're borrowing rhetoric from the anti-lynching movement. And the anti-lynching movement had already sort of displaced emphasis on lynching as a mechanism of racial power, displaced emphasis away from the black victim, and put emphasis on the white crowds and white communities and made the argument that lynching is wrong because it is uncivilized and it's barbaric and it's a threat to American democracy and American civilization. They tried to take race out of the conversation as a means to bring in white liberals and white moderates White moderates, they might be pro-segregation, they might have racist feelings, they might be worried about black crime, but they want to see America as modern and progressive and and they want to stand for law and order. So this was a kind of rhetorical strategy that that anti-lynching activists picked up, and you can see it in the ways that they used photographs to do that. So that's the message that Hollywood picks up. And so they make anti-lynching films where the victims are other white people. They make oblique references to race in the films, but to make the anti-lynching argument, Let's have it be a white person who's lynched, and then we can take race prejudice out of the issue and really just focus on what does this do? How does this corrode
0: white America? How does this corrode white communities? And then to bring this story full circle, Amy, in the aftermath of the Holocaust and the Second World War, lynching began to peter out and violence became more hidden. Mm -hmm. But the ways in which Anti-lynching activists like Ida B. Wells had transformed its significance, continued to live on. And this would actually have a profound effect on the civil rights movement. So you write, these popular representations of race in the 1940s, prepared white Americans to receive and interpret the photographs and televised images of black protest and white massive resistance that emerged from the South in the 1950s and 1960s as startling reminders that these American civic ideas had not yet to be realized. You focus in particular on the case of Emmett Till. Remind us what happened in the Emmett Till case and how it was understood as a case of lynching that helped propel the civil rights movement.
1: Sure. So Emmett Till was a 14-year-old boy from Chicago who uh, went down uh, to Money, Mississippi, where he had relatives. And when he was there, he allegedly wolf-whistled at a white woman whose husband owned a grocery store there. You know, just sort of a, a childish, adolescent kind of thing to do. And the husband of the white woman, and I think his brother or her brother, took Emmett Till and basically murdered him, tortured him and left his body in the river. And it it was a hate crime. It was a lynching in the sense that he was punished for transgressing the boundaries of of Jim Crow. What made it different is that it was not a public spectacle. It was violence that these men tried to keep hidden. What happens is that Emmett Till is found and his body is sent back up to Chicago. And Emmett Till's mother wants to publicize what happened to him. So she has an open casket funeral and she has an image of his corpse. She did not have the coroner transform his corpse in any way. So his corpse is bloated from being in the river. His beatings are very apparent. And she allowed a photograph of that corpse to be published in the Chicago Defender, the black newspaper in Chicago, and in Jet Magazine, which is an African-American magazine. And it had a tremendous impact, particularly juxtaposed to, to Emmett Till's school picture, where he looks like a little innocent boy. And in a sense, she turned the lynching back into a spectacle right, that the white men had tried to make it not a spectacle. She transforms it into a spectacle, but it's a spectacle that's in the service of the civil rights movement. And it's seen as an event where a lot of African Americans remember seeing that image in Jet Magazine, seeing it in the Chicago Defender, and being horrified. It sort of became a symbol of we're not safe. How If this little boy's not safe, then the rest of us aren't safe. It sort of took that hidden violence that had been happening through the 40s and 50s and made it very visible to Americans, and particularly that you have an innocent boy helped create public outrage about it uh, on a very different level.
0: So in a sense, it turned it into a spectacle of horror, and it set the stage for other kinds of spectacles of horror that were to come, the televised examples of of black bodies being hosed down and of, of being whipped or of crowds, you know, unleashing even verbal violence that became part of the iconography of the civil rights movement. So in a sense, part of what you're saying is that even though for a long time, anti-lynching legislation turned out not to get post as law in the United States, Ida B. Wells as the prophet of anti-lynching and anti-lynching activists, the NAACP and white allies, liberal allies who participated in that cause actually did triumph. And they triumphed because they targeted the ways in which images helped to shape reality and by transforming the meaning of those images. So let's turn back to Ida B. Wells. She leads the anti-lynching campaign. She's the first to speak out about it. But as a result, she has to leave Memphis and she never returned to Memphis, which was her home and where she honed her skill set that made her such a pioneering leader of the early civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, and as a prophet of anti-lynching. What are your thoughts about why Memphis should do more to publicly celebrate Ida B. Wells and help elevate her into an icon that her legacy merits?
1: You know, interesting. And I I think my answer would have to revolve around the importance of tangible memorials. There's a a number of communities around the country that are trying to uh, create commemorations of lynching as sort of a means of racial reconciliation in these communities. And part of that is for the white community to sort of acknowledge that this kind of violence took place. And I think being able to commemorate that Physically, I mean, in in the case of these other communities, it's trying to find ways of commemorating the lynchings themselves. With Ida B. Wells, it's commemorating this hero, this person who really started the anti-lynching crusade, but who herself was a victim of terrorist threats, right? You come back to Memphis and, and you'll be killed. So she's a victim in that sense as well. And I I think the purpose of it would be similar to these other ones to kind of create a sense of reconciliation of sort of, we need to acknowledge this past for us to be able to move past that past. And I think that in getting to sort of what something tangible like a monument can do is create a focal point for people to bear witness to that. It's sort of similar to what I was talking about in my book or what I talk about in my book, the importance of the visual to frame understanding of their experience and ways in which visual representations can animate feeling and shape public perceptions. So a memorial would do all of that. A memorial would become that kind of touchstone or focal point through which people can understand the past and reconcile themselves to this past.
0: Amy, what you've helped us to understand is that images have stories behind them and that they have a larger reality behind them. And I think part of what is so wonderful about Ida B. Wells is that it's such a multifaceted and complex and interesting and nuanced story. It's certainly not the story of someone who was a victim or allowed herself to be victimized. It's the story of someone who picked herself up by her bootstraps, who at the age of 16 took care of her family, who rose up the social ladder through education, who transformed the world through the use of her pen and who reached out from Memphis to become a a global figure and someone whose story deserves to be told. But also we have to understand in the telling of that story why it was that the anti-lynching campaign really was a transformative moment in the history of America. So thank you so much for bringing that story to us.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here.
0: Putting a spotlight on the role of scholars, academics, and intellectuals, and how their work illuminates the issues we face locally and globally, CounterPoint is a monthly broadcast on WKNO-FM. To listen to this show in its entirety, visit WKNOFM.org and click on the news menu item where you'll find a link to CounterPoint. You can podcast CounterPoint by visiting iTunes and searching for WKNO-CounterPoint. Counterpoint is a production of WKNO-FM in association with the Spence L. Wilson Chair in Humanities at Rhodes College. Justin Willingham produces the show. I'm Jonathan Judakin. Thanks for listening.